We're talking about Larry Householder again. He appears to have broken the law another time. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon to wrap up a week of hot discussions. You always like when I say we're wrapping up the week, don't you? <laughs> it's always yeah, good. I wish. <laughs> Yeah, the weekends are just not like over yet. Day. Yeah, we got another day. Okay, let's begin. How much of his campaign account did ousted House Speaker Larry Householder use to pay legal fees after his arrest over the summer in a sixty million dollar bribery case to provide a one point three billion dollar bailout to nuclear pants owned at the time by First Energy? We always have to reiterate: First Energy, sixty million bribery, one point three billion dollar bailout, because it still <laughs> boggles my mind that we're talking about those kind of numbers. But now, a new revelation: What's going on here, Jane Cahoon? Well, this was a real stunner when the, yesterday was the, the deadline for campaign finance reports. And Larry Householder, who is still running for reelection, he is still a House member, reported his campaign expenses. And he spent nearly $950,000 from his campaign account on legal fees since his arrest in, in July. And most of that money went to two law firms that are uh, defending him. So, you know, to, we talked to experts in campaign finance law who said, you know, this is really questionable, if not outright. No, you can't, do it. you can't do it. I mean, we, you know. we looked at this when Armin Budish started using his campaign account to pay Steve Dettelbach as his lawyer when he fell under investigation. We looked at it and that was legal because Armin Budish was never charged, still wasn't charged with a crime. That was a phantom investigation that Yost has been running in Cuyahoga County. that seems very partisan. So so that was OK because he's not charged with any crimes and he was using Steve Dettelbach to advise him. But the minute if he were charged, which it doesn't appear he will be, he wouldn't be able to do that anymore. We know this. We did all the research. So what Householder's doing, you can't do it. You cannot use the campaign account to pay legal fees to, to defend yourself against criminal charges. So, I, you know, I don't get it. He's going to have to pay it back. I guess he'll declare bankruptcy. Well, remember, you know, when we were talking before that we thought he had a financial problem here. We And remember, he had difficulty finding lawyers and, and there was talk that he couldn't pay him. Well, he obviously found a way to pay him by uh, sucking the money out of his campaign account. But, you know, what's interesting is that the violating this law is a first degree misdemeanor with a, you know, $1,000 fine. So why not? You know, I mean, he's facing these charges that carry possible years in prison. So what's the big deal if he gets a misdemeanor for doing this? I, I don't know if that's the thought process. I'm just kind of wow, that's rambling about fascinating. that. You know? A calculated risk. Like, what the hell? I'm going to go to be wearing a jumpsuit for 30 <laughs> years. Who cares about a misdemeanor? And they would order that he pay it back. But if he doesn't have any money, he can't pay it back. I, it, it, You know, I, our speculation at the time, they didn't have any money to pay lawyers. Obviously, he did. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> That wasn't the issue. The money. <laughs> he had a million dollars he wanted to give him. It's just finding somebody to represent him. Well, I, it's a staggering one because, you, you, like you said, you can't do it. What's sad is that it is only a misdemeanor because that does make it attractive for a bad person to do the wrong thing. And, you know, it's a slap on the wrist. So what he's doing is setting a precedent for all, for all future elected felons to say, yeah, what the hell? It's a calculated risk. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
What is the final verdict on the mysterious death in 2016 of a Lafayette Township trustee who was found partially submerged in a lake after having been stabbed six times? Larry Johnson, this is one of the weirdest cases I've ever heard of. I I mean, really, it's just strange. We don't usually talk about death cases on this podcast. It's more politics and what's going on. But this is so bizarre. We just have to talk about it. It is bizarre. So the case was finally closed yesterday after four years. They have ruled that no one else was involved. Investigators will not say it's a suicide, but they've closed the investigation. They say the scene in the office of Lafayette Township trustee Brian Macron, which had knocked over chairs, blood on the walls on the floor, and a bottle of water on a flimsy table, was staged before his death. And they said no one else was involved in that staging. So Medina County Prosecutor S. Forrest Thompson had a news conference Thursday about this. The coroner had ruled his death undetermined, so they can't say it's a suicide, but they said they don't have, quote, a shred of evidence to determine that someone else was involved. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was back in 2016, December, that he was reported missing. He's 45 years old after a township employee found his office in this huge disarray. And investigators found blood in an SUV hours later when it was found parked at Chippewa Lake. They combed the shoreline at the time, but they didn't search the frozen lake. And then it wasn't until February of 2017 that a kayaker discovered his body partially submerged and he had stab wounds and it showed that his lungs did not have water in them i believe so it he he couldn't have drowned yeah i mean he had six stab wounds so so the only conclusion you can make they're not going to call it a suicide but the only conclusion you can make is he decided to make his death look mysterious trashed his office put blood on his car went out to the lake stabbed himself six times in such a way that he would fall into the lake to create more of a mystery and and that's not ended. I mean, nobody believed that this wasn't some kind of killing just because of all those details. But wow, what a wacky way to end your life, to try and create this this suspicion that you were attacked, stabbed and tossed into a lake when you did it all yourself. It is mind blowing. And and I think that there's probably still going to be questions for a very long time. But they said they'd reopen the investigation if they get any evidence that anyone else was involved. But they just they don't have any. Well, it, yeah. I mean, they spoke pretty strongly that that if there was any way they could have charged somebody, they would have. There is just no evidence anybody did this to him. And you could tell there was a little frustration there because, you know, the guy was stabbed six times. I mean, you know, that that is kind of a sign of murder. Uh, and people are like, come on, man. That, that, that Really, he did this to himself. But apparently that's the way the evidence comes. What a strange case. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is it restaurants, churches, family gatherings? With Ohio setting a daily coronavirus record for a sixth time in October, what is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine saying about when we might get contact tracing data to finally show us exactly where the virus is spreading. Jane Kuhn, I have a feeling this is an unsatisfactory answer. Yeah, uh, Chris, I do suspect that he or his people were listening to Thursday's podcast when you absolutely skewered him for not providing this crucial data that we need to, to pinpoint the spread of this. So maybe he was ready on Thursday when when Laura Hancock asked him about this at his Thursday afternoon briefing, he, he said, um, oh, you know, it's interesting that you asked because <laughs> I had a discussion about that this morning with my people and 
you know, we're going to make this attempt to provide better data. And he said they were going to give the local health departments like a list of things to check off. He called them fields. So maybe they're actually talking about a spreadsheet, how how modern. But but then he promptly lowered the expectations by saying this will still you know, this probably won't clearly identify the sources of spread because, for instance, like if a coronavirus patient, my telecontact tracer, well, I went to church, I went to the grocery store, and I went to a restaurant. So we still wouldn't know the source in that case. But I I have to say, this really struck me as not only unsatisfactory, but a bit at odds with, you know, what he's been saying for months. He's been giving us all these anecdotes in which he sounds pretty certain that this is being spread by informal gatherings, birthday parties, weddings, funerals, and things like that. So, you know, why is he so sure about that? And at the same time, he's telling us that even when they step up their data game here, it's still not going to give us the answers that that we want. Yeah, I, I, I'm just not buying the family gathering argument. I, because, look, let's face it, a month ago we had 1,000 cases a day. Yesterday we had 2,400. You do not have a 150% increase in family gatherings since a month ago. Just that's that's not it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, who knows what it is? We, we know anecdotally that is our, the people we know go about, they're seeing a whole lot of people in restaurants sitting close together, not wearing masks. And maybe it's just the coronavirus fatigue we keep talking about where people are saying, ah, the hell with it. I'm not going to wear the mask or dropping their guard the way Chris Christie did when he described it on the briefing yesterday. But I, I'm just not buying that. That's something like family gatherings. Is it that, well, you know, the, the thing you said about, where, where if somebody says, I went to church, I went to a restaurant, I went to, to school, whatever, not being helpful, it would be helpful if you could say that of, of the, the 2,400 people who, ha- who were tested positive for the coronavirus yesterday, 80% reported going to an indoor restaurant in the past two weeks. Right. You could connect some dots. Yeah. Then, right? I mean, it, you can do all sorts of things with data. If you just get the damn data points, they have thousands and thousands of data points that they're unable to sort. What what bothered me a little bit about what he said yesterday is they're going to start doing this going forward. They're going to ask the health departments to to check some boxes. That's great. Going forward, we'll we'll learn right. what's going on. But I sh- certainly would like to know what's in those data banks already, which would take clerks or right. interns going through and checking a bunch of boxes. I, I am dying to know how, you know, if we go from a thousand to 2,400, where did those 1,400 people can get I it? add in something here? I think there's Sorry, a lot. Of, thank you. Um, there's a lot of things that are opening up now and it seems like a very weird time. It's like they made the plans when the cases were dropping. All of a sudden my kids can take skating lessons. They can have indoor swim lessons. And I feel like, um, there are there are art classes, and I'm not saying that's football where the games. spread is. Right, football <laughs> games. I'm not saying that's where the spread is, but you look at where we were in the summer, and there was just like nothing going on, right? And now the people got, they figured out a way forward. They said they had a safe plan, and now almost everything is open if you wear a mask for some part of the time, right? You cannot wear a mask at a pool or whatever, and an indoor pool is definitely not as safe as an outdoor pool. So, I mean. I want to look at all of those things that are opening and saying, would we, should we really have, have done this? I'm not well, sure. It, there was a story I saw this morning. I got a Boston that ice rinks are becoming 
serious super spreaders of the coronavirus and kids playing hockey. And so a lot of ice rinks are shutting down. I had an interesting conversation with our columnist, Layla Tassi, yesterday. She lives in Bay Village. She has a column, not about this today. She's writing about the Bay Village homeless statue. But but there is a controversy out there because they're closing the schools again. It's going to be all remote learning, but they're allowing people to still play sports, soccer and football and wrestling. So oh. so it's hugely controversial. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're you're not going to have kids in classes, but you're letting them play sports. There is there is a nuance that you're required to send your kids to to school. So there's a legal problem there. If I don't want my kids congregating with other kids, I should have some options, whereas sports are optional. But if you're trying to stop the spread of the virus, wrestling is not going to, to be a good path to that. So she says it's blowing up out there that people are, um, it's very controversial in Bay Village. Yeah, I can understand that. And, you know, you send out the note about hockey and my kid plays hockey and at least you're covered like head to toe in hockey. Like your skin does not touch anyone. I'm thinking basketball in like a hot, sweaty gym. Like, I don't know how that's going to be safe. Well, and, and, and the evidence is with hockey there, that's where it's spreading. And they've got a number of clusters that have developed and they've tied it all back to to uh, the indoor ice rink. So it sounds like that won't be something. I, I do feel like if this continues, and, and as we keep pointing out, there's no plateau in sight. Mm-hmm. We, this, the curve is up. And we might break another record today. We might break another one tomorrow. That that these things will have to close down. You, you just cannot continue to have people getting together in situations, especially if there's masks, no mask wearing involved. They'll have to shut down. I do wonder if it's the indoor restaurants that, that as bad as it would be for the restaurant economy, are they the cause of this? Because people have moved indoors because it's too cold to sit outside. Uh, well, you know, contact tracing would tell us that. Be nice if we could get that data. <laughs> and you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does the Cleveland Teachers Union have to say about a mysterious group that is working to kill the Cleveland school tax proposal on the November ballot? Jane Cahoon, this is interesting because this tax has been before voters a few times before with really no opposition. But the dark money that makes opposition anonymous is heavily at play here. Yeah, we have this mysterious LLC that's called Cleveland's Future Fund. And they haven't come forward to identify, you know, who they are, but they've been sending out mailers and advertising and doing Facebook ads opposing the, the tax renewal and increase for the, for the city schools. And the Cleveland Teachers Union, you know, they don't like, they think they should be transparent here. And so they've filed a complaint with the Ohio Elections Commission accusing the group of listing a false address on its mailers and they also claim that they 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 issued a mailer with, without the proper name of the organization. So so maybe these are like technical things, but I think they're just trying to out this group because they they have been in the shadows. Now we have had we do have some evidence that local real estate developers have spoken out against this tax. So we don't exactly know who's behind it, but one of them, Doug Price, told Crane's Cleveland Business that he had contributed to the to the campaign. So so we do know that. But anyway, they you know, the advocates for this issue 68 are, are really working actively to try to combat this anti-levy com- campaign. They're, you know, canvassing the neighborhoods and they they've got mailers that are called truth. But, um, you know, we have a battle here. 
Well, part of the issue, when this tax first came about, it was with the, the, the school overhaul, the plan that went through the legislature that then Governor John Kasich worked with the mayor, Frank Jackson, on. And, and they put it in, and they, I think, what, it have a three-year sunset or something, and said, you know, you'll come back and review our progress, and we'll ask you to renew it. And they did, and then they did it again. This time, though, it's not a straight renewal. It's an increase. And as we know, tax increases always get the extra level of scrutiny. If if you're a real estate developer, you're thinking, man, this is going to make it harder to sell people on Cleveland, especially given the coronavirus era. So I don't want more taxes. I, I want to make the taxes lower. It's just sad that this can operate in such secrecy. I mean, you would like to to have this be an open debate. The problem is, is if the school loses this, they lose the money that they've already been getting, not just the increase. Um, that's pretty crippling. I mean, they, it's, you know, it's a sizable portion of their budget. Eric Gordon has demonstrated every year real progress for the Cleveland schools. It's incremental. They're not there. They're not anywhere close to being there. But after years of going downward, they've got a lot of progress. They've done a lot of things well. This will this would be crippling to the effort to give Cleveland school kids an education. So it'll be interesting to see if this group gets anywhere. Uh, it's just these laws that, that allow the, the secrecy. They're terrible. <laughs> and we saw it. That's why, you know, First Energy was able to get away with what it got away with in this campaign to get rid of, uh, to stop the uh, rejection of HB6 at the ballot. That was all secret until the feds came out and said, no, it's not secret. It was bribery. Let's indict everybody. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is now one of the best times ever to sell your house? Laura Johnston, it's a raging house market, something you were familiar with when you bought your house a few years back, but it's hot, hotter now, I think. Yeah, I'm never, ever selling my house. <laughs> it was hard enough to buy it. Um, but everyone wants their own space during the pandemic. So Ohio home sales were up more than 18% in September from the same month a year ago. And then numbers released Thursday by the Ohio Realtors Trade Association showed that 15,851 homes were sold last month. That's compared to the 13,421 homes sold in September of 2019. The average home price in Ohio was $224,081. That's a 15.7% increase from last year. In Cuyahoga County alone, we're talking about 1,600 home sales last month. That's up 19% from September 2019. And the average sale price was about $201,000. That's up from one seventy five eight fifty eight. dollars So I mean, that's a significant chunk of money to go up in a year. Well, and, and remember back after 2008, how depressed the prices had been and the talk about how long it would take for people's housing prices to recover. This isn't a bubble. This is actual demand. There are people that don't want to live in apartment buildings anymore, especially with elevators where they can get coronavirus. Uh, so it's it's just an interesting time that, that people's big many for many people the biggest investment is their house and it's becoming more valuable even in a very strange coronavirus economy yeah and it you know i guess the realtors were considered essential workers so they were allowed to keep selling through the pandemic which did not happen everywhere so ohio's had this very robust market they were kind of down a little bit in the spring but they've been booming for 3 months now we're we're hitting big numbers but if you think about it i mean everybody loves to look at real estate just look at like netflix shows right but People want, people are home all the time now. And actually, I just did a call out 
for home improvement projects because so many people are using this extra time and the fact that they don't have a lot on to do to improve the space that they have, whether they want to add a home office since they're working from home, they want to like put in a patio because they can't go anywhere and they want to feel like they have a vacation in their backyard. People are really investing because they want their own little piece of the world where they feel safe. And sometimes they want more space so they can safely entertain others, I guess. But I I think whether you're staying or whether you're trying to buy, like everybody's trying to create this cocoon from the world. And we'll have to see what happens in the winter. Usually, you know, sales slow down. I think Rich Exner's done some data crunching showing the best time to get a good deal is the winter. So um, I don't know what'll happen. I, you know, I took stock recently and realized that I have completed a whole bunch of projects that I'd had in the works. And it's for exactly what you said. Are you guys get both getting a lot of stuff done around your houses? <laughs> so I ripped out all the carpet in my bedroom and the hallway upstairs. Uh, so there's nice hardwood. I mean, it needs refinishing, but I'm, I'm not that handy. Uh, I painted a porch. I did this armoire project where I put wallpaper in. Okay. So, so you're a big yes. <laughs> oh my God. Where are you guys finding the time for this? I don't know. I, I don't have, I don't have to edit every person. story that gets written, Jane. I mean, it's like uh, everybody else has done the big Marie Kondo condo thing, you know, and I'm like, where where are these people finding time for this? (laughs) You just have to take another week off, Jane, so you can get a project. No, no more weeks. When I finally get a week off, it's like, I got to relax. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no more weeks off. It's this week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost file a friend of the court brief in the case of a lawmaker trying to have Governor Mike DeWine arrested over coronavirus restrictions? Jane, this is a stupid story. It just continues to be stupid. This lawmaker is out of his gourd trying to get the governor arrested on on these bogus crimes. The attorney general does not like what this legislator is doing. Right, right. Yes, this is your your another chance for you to mercilessly make fun of Representative John Becker <laughs> and another chance to applaud Dave Yost for stepping in and doing the right thing. But as we, we've said before, Becker is this ultra conservative lawmaker from southwest Ohio who absolutely hates DeWine's coronavirus actions and wants to see the governor behind bars and has concocted this criminal complaint that he's tried to file against him for all sorts of crazy crimes like terrorism and and interfering with people's civil rights. And and he's pushing to impeach DeWine in the legislature, which has gone nowhere and is only supported by a few other ultra conservatives. But after he quickly got brushed back on this attempt with the local prosecutor to to file these charges. He went to the Court of Appeals to try to force the issue. And here's where Dave Yo stepped in Yost filed a friend of the court brief with the appeals court saying that not only should they trash Becker's complaint, but they they should sanction him for wasting the legal system's resources on on what he called a, a political stunt. He said to deter others from filing similar cases, the court should either order Becker to pay attorney fees to to the local prosecutor, you know, who declined to charge DeWine, or to to require Becker to spend a day observing criminal trials in open court so that he can better understand the gravity of the matters for which prosecutorial and judicial resources must be preserved. So, and then he added your favorite quip into his brief by likening uh, Becker's accusation 
it to DeWine turning into a werewolf and holding up a liquor store. <laughs> you know, Dave Yost is a very interesting guy in state government. We've given him some flack because he's done some things that kind of are questionable. But but the thing you have to respect about him is he's smart. And, you know, we like smart people. We like people that have and some witty. Wit. He's witty, but he's also thoughtful. The, the idea that he's saying, yeah, make him pay the attorney's fees. Or how about this? Make him sit in a courtroom for a day so he understands just what he's monkeying with here. That's smart. You, you, you got to respect a good solution like that. It, it's just kind of fun to to have a guy in state government, even when you disagree with them, you have to respect the way he approaches his job. And we should note that all of these people are Republicans, Dave Yost, John Becker, Mike DeWine. So it's, it makes it even more interesting. It just makes our jobs a little more fun to have actually somebody <laughs> smart in the role. Yes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How has the CDC changed the definition of a close contact when it comes to the coronavirus? Lord Johnson, I'm, I'm torn on this. Half of me is like, <laughs> really? You're just figuring this out now? And half of me is, look, it's a new virus. We know nothing about it. And so, yes, we're going to keep changing things. What's the latest here? You're shocked the CDC is changing its mind on something? I mean, come on. Previously, they had defined close contact as someone who spent at least 15 consecutive minutes within six feet of a confirmed coronavirus case. Updated guidelines now say close contact is someone within six feet for a total of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour period. So local health departments are supposed to use this to decide who should be included in contact tracing. It's based on a CDC study of a Vermont prison worker who became infected after several brief interactions with COVID patients. None of the encounters lasted more than five minutes, but they added up. And he he wore a mask the whole time and a gown and goggles during the interactions, though there was some time the inmates weren't wearing their masks. You know, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or it was one of the other thousand conversations I've had with Jane over the past three or four months. But I remember when the CDC's original thing about 15 minutes consecutive came out, she was stunned by that. It was like, wait, 15 minutes? That's a long time. You can get this in seconds. So right. I, 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 think I give credit to Jane Cahoon for seeing through the nonsense of the original recommendation. Thank you. Thank you. It, it ranks up there with seeing through the, the no mask thing, which we, you know I still take huge credit for back in January. But way to go, Jane. That was preposterous. You <laughs> called it, and now they have fixed it. This makes much more sense. 15 minutes across 24 hours would seem to put you in a serious risk. The, the, the simple fact is, if somebody's infected, you shouldn't be near them because you're going to get the coronavirus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How often are we going to see Ohio visits by the presidential campaigns in the closing weeks? Jane Cahoon, we see over the years, lots of presidential campaigns as we come into the last week, week and a half of the presidential election. It seems like we're going to see them, even though the coronavirus is raging, we're, that we're not going to break our record of, of being a final stop. Yes, Ohio matters. Uh, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Ohio really wasn't considered in contention because of President Trump winning here in 2016 by eight percentage points. And in fact, his campaign is still pushing that narrative, accusing Joe Biden's campaign of, you know, wasting its time here because it's all sewn up. But if it was all sewn up, we wouldn't be seeing these people here constantly, right? So we have Trump who has booked a rally in Circleville Saturday afternoon and Biden's running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, is, is coming to Cleveland the same day. And Vice President Mike Pence is in the state again today after already being here early in, earlier in the week. 
And Trump's children, Don Jr. and Ivanka and Second Lady Karen Pence, they've all made appearances here in recent days. So I would not be surprised if we see even more visits next week in those final days before the election. In many of the the years, the Democratic candidate makes a big appearance in the final two days. We learned of it a few days before. Uh, the, the coronavirus has changed that. The personal appearance right. stuff isn't as We're big. not going to see a Bruce Springsteen concert, I don't think, with Biden. Or... <laughs> no, no. I don't. That would be very odd. Although they're <laughs> close in age now, so maybe. <laughs> uh, but but I, it'll be interesting to see if they all come back next weekend. The, you know, they're, they're coming now, but will we be the final stop? It's us in Philadelphia that often play that role. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much did the baby giraffe born at Cleveland Metro Park Zoo weigh at birth? And how tall is it? Lord Johnson, I want to end the podcast for the week on a high note. <laughs> a giraffe is a high note. What are we know? <laughs> oh, that's a great pun. Okay. So the new giraffe calf was born October 13th to mom Jasmine and dad Bo. He weighed 150 pounds and stood nearly six feet tall when he was born. So actually guests to the zoo can vote online or visit uh, the Welcome Plaza at the zoo to make a donation to vote on a name. There's Kendi, that means loved one, Nuru, that means light, or Zuva, meaning day or sun. And the proceeds from that will go to the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. So, And we actually have video of the cute baby giraffe on our site. Got six feet tall at birth. This is mind-boggling. I, they, they are... You just wonder what the evolutionary process was that brought about the giraffe because they're such strange looking creatures. But in, in many ways, they're graceful. I did an African safari a few years back and just sat watching them for hours. They're they're cool to see. So and, the, and who doesn't love a baby animal, right? Baby giraffe. Baby zoo animals are the the answer to all of our woes, I think. Right. There we go. So we ended on a high note. It's this week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Monday with another discussion.